1: Welcome one week after my birthday week, and actually the celebration still continuing because I get to bring you one of my favorite people on the planet, although I do say that about a number of people I bring on the show, but it's fun for me because it's like the people I hang out with in my living room or on my phone are the people that I'm bringing to you on the show, and I had such an amazing birthday week. It is so much fun to be able to have a chat with my guest today, Mr. Terry Whalen, Terry is one of those people who understands both sides of the publishing world. He is an acquisitions editor at Morgan James Publishing, which happens to be my publisher as well. But he's an editor and he's a writer. He's worked as a magazine editor. He's, his work has appeared in more than 50 publications. He was an acquisitions editor for several major publishers, both traditional and otherwise. And he was also a literary agent. So for those of you who are interested in publishing publishing, This is the show. You must be listening today. And if you know somebody who isn't listening right now that should be, please go get them, tell them to get on iHeartRadio, or turn on their dial to 107.9 FM in Vero Beach. And um, Terry's written more than 60 books through traditional publishers on topics from children's books to biographies to co-authored books. Over 15 years ago, he wrote a book called First Place by Carol Lewis, which sold over 100,000 copies, and it was a diet book. He's also known as a book proposal expert and has written a best-selling book, Book Proposals That Sell, 21 Secrets to Speed Your Success, has over 130 five-star Amazon reviews. That is not a small feat, I will tell you that. He has updated his teaching to include fiction and nonfiction, plus created a step-by-step online membership course called Write a Book Proposal, His latest book is Jumpstart Your Publishing Dreams, Insider Secrets to Skyrocket Your Success. And he also has written another book we're going to talk about today about Billy Graham. And when Terry gets on the line, we're not only going to be talking about publishing, we're also going to be talking about faith and Billy Graham and how somebody goes about making books that people want to read and want to learn about. So Terry, thank you so much for being here with me today.
0: Laura, it's a great honor to be with you. I'm really looking forward to this.
1: You know, it's one of my favorite times is whenever we get to spend even just a few minutes talking on the phone. And now that you're living in Denver, um, I know we have a slight time change when we talk, but it always seems like no matter what time I call, you're always there to answer the phone. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Glad to do it.
1: So you just got back from one of the biggest publishing events, Book Expo America in New York, correct?
0: Yes. Yes, I was I was there. I was just reading. Uh, there were over 20,000 people that were at this event. But yeah, it's the biggest book trade show in the country. And for the last few years, it's been in New York City at the Javits Center. But next year, it's going to move uh, very interesting. Uh, so it's going to be earlier in the month, and it's going to be in Chicago.
1: Oh, that's kind of upsetting for New York. <laughs> New York doesn't what? like to give up those things.
0: Yeah, it hasn't hasn't moved since uh, 2009, so it's going to be kind of a big deal.
1: Yeah, and Chicago is radically different from um, the Javits Center, so that'll be fascinating. But um, you know, there's reasons for everything. What was sure. your biggest takeaway from Book Expo America?
0: Well, I guess my my biggest takeaway is that uh, they're still making great books, and that authors need to figure out, if they, if they have a book, how in the world they're going to be actively promoting the book. Because I, I saw best-selling authors, I mean, Newt Genrich, um, Lee Child, Mitch Albom. I mean, you named the, name the author, and they were all there at Book Expo promoting their books. And so that's the kind of thing that I feel like every author has to be doing in order to find their audience.
1: You know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned those names being at Book Expo America promoting their books because none of them do you think needs to do any sort of book promotion whatsoever at this point in their careers. Um, every single one of them that you mentioned, well, I'm not sure about Newt Gingrich, maybe he is, uh, New York Times bestselling authors for Mitch Albom and um, Lee Child. You wouldn't think that they still need to promote.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't think so, but they have quite a fan base, and it was good for them to to be there, uh, seeing their fans and uh, signing books. Uh, I mean, I'm also thinking of you know the mega mega author that lives there in Florida with you, uh, James Patterson. He was also there. Um, he came after I had left uh, New York, unfortunately, so I didn't get to see him this year. But he's launched a new children's imprint, so his you know enterprise just keeps going and going, and that's that's a good place to announce those kinds of things.
1: Well, James Patterson totally gets that being an author is a business. It's not just about putting your words on paper, but it is a business as well. Absolutely. Um, how did you get your start in publishing?
0: Well, you know, I majored in journalism in college, uh, so I thought that's what I was going to do, was be a hard-chasing a newspaper kind of guy. But I uh, made kind of a left-hand turn out of college and I spent actually 10 years in linguistics <laughs> That's what Wow. what I did. I was uh, overseas working uh, in Guatemala among the Southwest K'iche'l people. But uh, I returned to my writing and I really started in the um, in the magazine area, I started started writing for magazines, freelancing. And you know, all these people want to be published out there, Laura, and they want to write books, and I, I totally get that. Books are permanent. They hold them in their hands, all that kind of thing. But I think there's really some valuable skills that every writer can learn from writing for magazines, for print, print magazines is what I'm thinking of in particular, because they have more prestige than just writing online or writing a blog or something like that. And it's not that hard to do. And, but you learn a, a tremendous amount as a writer uh, writing for those publications. You learn how to write for a specific target audience because every magazine is different. You learn how to write for a deadline, uh, write a specific word count, um, all those kinds of things. You learn how to revise the piece if the editor wants changes. Um, You learn how to have a beginning, middle, and end. You know, just those kind of simple things that people forget sometimes when they just, you know, dump out a book or whatever they're going to to publish.
1: I know I think about you every time I write a magazine article. I've been writing for the Vero's Voice magazine here in town, and I've written for some other magazines as well, but now I write monthly for the Vero's Voice, and I've been writing cover stories. This current issue is... On surfing and I knew nothing about surfing but they were looking for an idea for the Sebastian Inlet which is a the largest state park in Florida and I'm like well surfing is historical here some of the top surfers in the world came out of here and they're like oh okay you want to write an article on surfing I've never even been on a surfboard but I love the Beach Boys and Gidget movies so I figured what the heck and it requires a lot of research for the number of words that you're writing which is very different than most blogs, where you're just writing your thoughts. I had to integrate facts and everything in it, and every time I write it, I think of some of the tips you gave me way back when I was writing an article for a magazine. I'm like, Terry, can you give me your input? It was very different than writing my, my book, What Would a Wise Woman Do? This is a completely different style.
0: Yeah, it is a different style, but you learn a tremendous amount uh, doing those things, uh, you know, interviewing people that that surf and all those kinds of things, and integrating that into into a magazine article, and I always tell people, magazine articles will have a lot more exposure for you than probably your book ever will. I mean, in the book business, if if a book sells five thousand copies in general, we think that's really good, but it's very easy in a magazine to reach you know one hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand people in a in a magazine article. And those of us that are in publishing read magazines, and we read magazine articles and look at who wrote them and things like that. It's, so it's kind of an idea factory for us to find good authors that can really write and write well for a particular audience. And so you gain all that kind of exposure and everything from writing for magazines.
1: And a number of magazines pay for articles.
0: They do, they do. Some of them pay pretty well, like the uh, the ones that you see on the newsstands, like you know, good housekeeping and family circle and those kind of things. And yes, they are hard to get into, but they're start those editors start with a blank magazine every single month, and they look for writers that can write for their audience and communicate well. So why not try it?
1: What's a tip for somebody who's trying to break into the magazine writing and to how to get paid for their writing in some of these magazines?
0: Well, I guess the tip is to not focus on the pay at first. Uh, Really, you're looking more for the credit and the credential, the fact that you've written for uh, a local magazine or a regional magazine. Those are often good ways to start before you get into national magazines. But you you can climb climb the ladder of exposure just like you would with anything else. So you, you start out with what makes sense locally for you, and then you expand to something like statewide in Florida, or and then you look at something that's going to go national. And those kinds of things can easily build for you and your career. That very much did for me. And I've, written for some magazines over and over (laughs) through the years because editors know they can count on me that I'm gonna turn it in in the right kind of format that they need in the right kind of shape and they don't have to work like crazy to remake it after I turn it in.
1: You have a whole bunch of resources on your website on how people should sort of format things if I remember correctly, right?
0: I do. I do because you know, it, it depends on the publication. Some some magazines want you to write a, what they call a query letter, which is a, like a one-page pitch with your idea. And so you have to know kind of how to do that. Uh, other magazines just want the full manuscript. And, you know, you want to turn it in, in the right kind of way with your address and the word count at the top and all those kinds of basics that a lot of people don't even know about. So just you just have to learn a bit about how the system works out there, and then try it. We all get rejected, so if you get rejection, you're, that's okay. You just know that you're trying, and you just have to keep keep trying to find the right door and the right opportunity for you.
1: And the website's Terry dot com, right? Where they can get those resources.
0: Yeah, Terry dot com, or I have uh, I have a site called. Uh, write writing, that's R-I-G-H-T hyphen dot com. And there's lots of, lots of articles and different things over there, not just from me, but from other writer friends of mine that have given me permission to put those articles up. And just figure, figure out what the, what the system is, and you can learn it and go for it.
1: Yeah, you know what I love, Terry, when you talk about writing for the magazines and the deadlines, you talk, you you told us about really writing from the heart. Don't worry so much about the money, just start writing. And it's okay if you don't know the topic. Like with me, when I wrote the surfing article, I I just knew that I loved watching surfing movies and anything to do with the beach. And we've gotten such great response from that article I wrote that I had no direct knowledge to write that article, but my heart came out in it and I didn't write it first person either.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fantastic. And and that experience will help you in, in the whole writing world because the more you do, the more natural it, it becomes uh, and just, just follow through on stuff. That's, that's the big problem I see out in the publishing world a lot of times, Laura, is that uh, people don't follow through and don't carry out what they say they're going to do. They don't take action. And people wonder how in the world I've managed to publish all this stuff <laughs> that I have out there over the years. And, you know, I've I've kind of realized I'm I'm sort of a simple guy. You know, I go to these conferences, I meet editors, and they look at me and they say, you know, that's a really good idea. Write that up and send it to me.
1: And when we come back from the break, we're going to tell you exactly what he does next. So we'll be right back with Terry Whalen. We are back with my special guest, Terry Whalen, acquisitions editor at Morgan James Publishing, longtime publishing guru, um, multifaceted author, and a dear friend of mine. And Terry, before the break, we were talking, as I just banged the microphone with my arm, Before the break, we were talking about the things that you do different when you'd run into people and they'd ask you to do things. What exactly is the difference?
0: Yeah, it's not that I'm the greatest writer in the world, Laura, or anything like that, but I am uh, persistent, and I do persevere, and I do follow through. And so those basic skills are something that anybody that's listening to us can actually achieve. And so if you go to some conference, or you hear from some editor and he says, write this up and send it to me, they're sincere. They really want it. And so if you take action on that, uh, from my years in this business, I would say that puts you probably in the top 3% of all the people that that editor is working with because you actually took action and did something. Uh, repeatedly going to these writers' conferences over the years. I look people in the eye all the time and I say, you know, that's really good. I'd like to see that. Send it to me. Here's my card. I tell them how to do it. But very few of those people actually do that. (laughs) So if you take action, then you've moved ahead of all those other people that want to be published.
1: You know, it's so true. Uh, You and I met at an author conference, Author 101 University, and by our friend Rick Frischman. And I had spoken at the conference, and whenever I speak at that conference, I have a table where I offer advice to authors that are going to be there and, you know, help them sort of connect to their book. And then I would say, go talk to this person or go talk to that person. I've sent a number of people to talk to you, and they'll come back and they go, he wants my book proposal, or he wants my manuscript. And I'm like, great, are you going to send it to him? And they're like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I hear from you weeks later. Hey, Laura, you know that person you sent my way? I never heard from him. So I reach out to them and I go, hey, you know, Terry wanted your book proposal or your manuscript or he needed this from you. You didn't send it. How come? Oh, I'm not ready. I don't think I have it exactly right. He really didn't mean it. And it just (laughs) blows my mind. You're at this event. You're at... A tipping point in your life you get a publisher interested in your book or your manuscript and you don't even send a note saying thank you give me another week or two you don't even acknowledge it, (laughs) you just pretend it didn't happen
0: I mean I, I understand people are perfectionist, it's never right, it's never ready to send but you have to look at your material and say, you know, this is really good enough. It's not perfect, but it's good enough to send. And so I should go ahead and send that. And all of us have interruptions, we have you know, our car breaks down, and we have all kinds of different things that happen in our life. But you need to figure out how to get over those hurdles and go ahead and take action. And if you do that, you'll put yourself way ahead of all those other people that want to get published out there.
1: And, you know, I'm not perfect at taking action all the time. I've actually been kind of stuck for the last year or so since my divorce and a whole bunch of other things. But I was talking to somebody on the phone yesterday from Australia who wanted to pick my brains about something and she's been really wonderful and has been promoting my book for me in Australia, which kept it on the bestseller list in Australia for several years now. Wow. So I'm like, okay, let's let's talk on Skype and we're talking about her new book that she's talking about launching. And something drove me to tell her honestly, you know I've just felt really stuck for the last year. And she goes, You know, Laura, I've always felt that too, but you are so not stuck because you send little notes out on social media or whatever. And just you're sharing what you're going through gets me unstuck. So you're really not stuck. You're just not looking at how you're unstuck. <laughs> it's like, and it, made, it hit me. I was questing for perfection again that I had to be 100% everything I wrote in the book. But when you read my book, it's not about perfection. It's about learning to try to ask the right questions as many times as you can. And if you ask the wrong question, it's okay. Just when you realize you're going in the wrong direction, start over again and ask yourself another question. So um, I encourage anybody who's listening today, if you have ever encountered... publisher, or anybody that said, I'm really interested in this, and even if it's been a year or two since you responded to them, reach out. You know, maybe they forgot about it, maybe they didn't, but, you know, take some action. Don't you agree with that, Terry? Yeah, no, absolutely, and I have
0: people that come back to me, you know, after I've, it's been a couple years maybe since I've talked to somebody, and I think that's perfectly fine to go ahead and take action and send them what they were looking for. Check with them. You can send them a little note, say, hey, you still looking for this? I've I got it ready now. I'm ready to send it to you. Because timing
1: in the publishing world may not be right either. If it's a couple years later, the publisher may not be interested in it, but you know what? Maybe something else you're doing might be interesting to them at the time.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's all about timing as one of the one of the key things that I've learned about publishing is being in the right time, in the right place, with the right stuff, with the right person, all those kinds of things. <laughs> the rights have to line up, but you don't know what the rights line up or not if you aren't trying, if you aren't knocking on those doors of opportunity, and there's lots of them out there.
1: Yeah, and if you're not asking the right questions either, you, you uh, need to be asking, because if you don't go to Terry Wellen and say, I have this idea, or I wrote this book, or I wrote this short story, what do you think of it?
0: Absolutely. We're looking for those kinds of things all the time. And, you know, it might not be right for me, but I have a lot of other connections and other people that I know that are looking for those kinds of things, and I'm always happy to send them that direction, too. I,
1: I love the comment both you and Rick Freshman individually told me at different points in time. And I was very thankful it didn't apply to me, just because I I like to believe I actually know how to write. But you all said, Laura, we love your idea. This is before I had written my book. And you said, and if you can't write, that's okay. That's what ghostwriters are for. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes somebody has a fantastic idea, they have the content, but they can't grammatically put the structure together. And that's what fantastic editors and publishers like yourself are all about and that's why you've co-authored books is to help people get their message out
0: I have and it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun and an honor to, to do that kind of thing and I've learned a tremendous amount doing that kind of thing like you you probably know about this that I did uh, Vanetta Flowers book a few years ago the first African American ever to win a gold medal in the Winter Olympics and so she mm-hmm. won it in the 2002 winter bobsled uh, race. And just two, so you know, we're portions.
1: about to go into the news break.
0: <laughs> okay. Anyway, I uh, I learned a tremendous amount about bobsledding doing that book. It was fun.
1: I, and I bet that's a conversation you and I are going to have to have because I want to hear about that some more. And when we come back from the news break, we'll be back with Terry Wellen talking about the Catch 22 of publishing. Since this show is, it's all about the questions and learning to ask the right questions, here's a question for you, Terry. What is the catch-22 of publishing? You talk about it in one of my favorite books, Jumpstart Your Publishing Dreams, but it's not what we all think it is.
0: Well, the catch-22 of publishing is, I, I relate that to when you're brand new and you want to go out and get your first job and you've got to put your resume together. You don't have a whole lot to put on your resume because you've never worked before. So you've got to figure out how you can fill that resume with material. It's the same kind of thing in publishing. Those of us that are in publishing are looking for other people that have experience in publishing so we can publish them more. And so I kind of call that the catch-22 of publishing. And the best way that you get around that is through this very area that we've been talking about, writing for magazines, because... When you publish in a magazine, that is a publishing credit that you can use with the editors to say, "Look, I'm a professional here. I really do get my work out into the world through magazines." And you can use that to sort of move up to the next level in the in the process. So many people, I find Laura, want to start with a book because they want to hold it in their hand and think, "Gee, I got a book with my name on it," which is Fantastic, I I totally agree, but it's often not the best place to start. Um, books are long, you know, they're forty, a hundred thousand words sometimes, and so that's a lot of work to put that together. Instead, it's easier to write a five hundred word, twelve hundred word magazine article, get that out into the world, have a publishing credit that you can use with the editor to show that yes, I really can get my work out there
1: it really sounds very simple but for a lot of people they can't seem to break out of that loop which is I guess why it's called the (laughs) catch-22 right how did you break from that to begin writing biographies and I mean you have over 60 books I mean, that's a a big leap.
0: Yeah, it was was a big leap. Uh, I wrote for magazines for many years, and people knew that I could write and communicate and get published in the magazine world. And, you know, it's sort of simple in a sense. I went to one of these writers' conferences, and an editor looked at me and said, Terry, you know, we're supposed to publish books about missions for kids, to encourage kids that the world's bigger than just the United States. Uh, What kind of ideas do you have? And, you know, that's always an opportunity when an editor asks you that question. So I searched around my mind, see if I had an idea, and I did. I pitched her this idea of, you know, kids watch cartoons all the time. So what if you had a cartoon character but combined it with real pictures to show kids that they could go anywhere that they want to with, with their life and their world. And she said, you know, it's a really good idea. Write that up and send that to me. And so, just like we're talking about here, I took action. I went home. I wrote it up. I sent it to her. It didn't work out right at first. I mean, I had to rewrite this thing over and over before it finally got published. And it became my first little book that I did for David C. Cook in 1992 called When I Grow Up, I Can Go Anywhere for Jesus, and it combined a cartoon character with real pictures from the group that I belonged to back then, Wycliffe Bible Translators. And I was writing stories in magazines about people called personality profiles, and someone turned to me a while back and said, hey, how would you like to write a full-length book about somebody? And I said, sure, that'd be great. And so that's kind of how I started writing biographies. I love biographies. I read biographies a ton when I was a kid, and so it sort of spurred me into writing longer pieces about people and their whole their whole lives.
1: I would imagine that writing a book about somebody else's life is not an easy feat. And especially if it's an authorized biography and you're writing it um, for somebody or with somebody, or in the case of Billy Graham, somebody that you know personally, ha- you have to ask a lot of questions. Uh,
0: you do. You have to ask a lot of questions, and you have to sort of be aware, first of all, of the kinds of things that are already out there about that person and understand how your book is going to be different or distinct than all of the other books that are out there about that particular person. So like for my Billy Graham book, one of the distinctions I would say is that this is an easy to read, uh, 170-page book about the life of Billy Graham. It's not 650 pages like his autobiography Just As I Am is, where you may get lost in all the names and the different things that happen in Mr. Graham's life. Um, So that's That's how you have to make your book stand out to be something distinct and different than Zari out in the market.
1: You know, I loved reading the Billy Graham book, and I've read a number of things about him in different articles and newspaper things over the years. What hit me about your book was the personal with the impersonal, where you could tell that you as the author knew the person, but yet you distanced yourself enough from the content so that we knew that you were telling truth as as you knew it, as you were aware of it, with some details that only somebody, say, on an inside might know. How do you balance that, not only in writing a biography, but writing anything, doing that balance act?
0: Yeah, you know, it is, it is a delicate balance, but uh, one of the things I did putting together this this book about Billy Graham is I interviewed people that had great stories about him and knew him personally, for example, I talked to to Jean Ford, who's his only living sibling, his little baby sister, and interviewed him her uh, interviewed her rather about you know what it was like to have Billy Graham as an older brother and and those kinds of stories she told me. So I built some of that into the book. Uh, Gene's husband, uh, Dr. Leighton Ford, worked for Billy Graham for over 30 years as an associate evangelist. And so he had great stories about his experiences of working with, with Mr. Graham. And so I listened to those stories and pick, and picked a couple of stories that I thought were really great that he told me that were short enough that I could go ahead and include in my book and added those into the book. So you're right, there's, there's a combination of, of facts, but also of experiences that Mr. Graham had throughout his life that the reader can learn a tremendous amount and apply to their own life.
1: Faith has played a tremendous amount in your, um, in your career and in your life. And, and to write a book about Billy Graham, obviously it's a center to your life. How does that factor in when you're picking projects or just going about your, your daily business life?
0: Well, you know, that's, that's a really great question. Uh, yeah, faith is a uh, foundation stone, I would say, in my, my life and the way I operate and the way I believe in people and all those all those kinds of things. And it comes from comes from long experience, comes from doing a lot of reading, but also having that personal faith connection that I have with uh, Jesus, and so I—that it's a centerpiece piece of my life, and it helps me know how to, you know, treat people with kindness and integrity, and all those kinds of things are built into my life because of. Because of the faith journeys that I've been on personally, and I I worked for Billy Graham myself over 20 years ago. I was an associate editor at Decision Magazine, back when we were doing 1.8 million copies of the magazine every month. Talk about numbers! Um, now the circulation of the magazine's dropped off, but it's still around 300,000, which is a large magazine to that get is. published in.
1: that That is quite a large um, circulation.
0: but faith has always been uh, a part has been a part of my life, I would say through it, it hap- the the key incident in my own life happened uh, about halfway through my my sophomore year in college. and that experience has is something that has carried through in my life uh, day in and day out, and that's why. A lot of my books are in the the faith Christian category over the years and the magazines that I write for are in the same same kind of vein. Sure I've written for Writers Digest and some places like that, but overall the bulk of my writing life has been in the inspirational religious marketplace.
1: Yeah, some people will say that your leaving a lot of money on the table because you have a faith-based focus or that you won't get media attention or those things because you're, you're faith-focused. What's your response to that?
0: You no, know, I don't really think I am leaving a lot of money in, on the table. I'm writing something that I'm passionate about, and that passion does show through. And, you know, depending on how you uh, – how vocal you are about the specifics of your faith, I guess. I'm not offending anyone out there. And so I would say that um, the media and everybody is, is intrigued with that and interested in it, no matter, no matter where you, you come in. So it's, um, you know, there is, there is a broad world out there that uh, the Joel Osteens and the Franklin Graham's and all those kind of people are comfortable speaking in. And I think that opportunity is there for each of us.
1: When you and I first met, one of the things I loved about you was you seemed to have no preconceived notions about anybody. You met the person and were totally present with them. And I honestly believe that your strength of your faith helps you with that. And I want to just thank you for that.
0: Well, thank you. You're Probably unique, Laura, in pointing that out, uh, but I, I really do try to, try to listen to people and see where, where they're coming from, uh, to be able to help them from that point that they are right there to where they need to go next. And so that's how people have treated me over the years, and I have hugely benefited, uh, my whole writing life just stands on the shoulders of all these people that I've learned from, and I've tried to apply that to my own life.
1: And we're right, gonna, as
0: I've worked with others.
1: And we're going to talk more about that when we come back after the commercial break. So, Terry, here's a, another question for you, since I, I love questions.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: If somebody wanted, they had a manuscript, and they had it sitting in a drawer, they weren't sure what to do with it, whether it was any good, what's the one question or two questions you think they should be asking themselves in order to get that out of the drawer?
0: Well, I think they should be asking themselves, who is the target reader for this book? Who would I like to have reading this book? And do I want it in a bookstore, or do I want to self-publish, or how do I want to go about doing that? And then just plot a course of action, how they're going to get the book out there into the market. Sure, they may get rejected a few times, but get it out of the drawer and get it to somebody that can actually do something to help you. It's one of the great things that I like about what I do at Morgan James. I mean, we receive 5,000 submissions a year. That's no joke there. That's a lot of stuff coming our direction. And out of those books, we only choose to publish around 150 books that we sell into, David Hancock likes to say, 98% of the bookstores in North America. Um, So I just encourage your listeners to to take action. Um, Get a hold of me. Send it to me. I mean, uh, people call me one of the most accessible people in publishing (laughs) because I do try to answer my email, and I return phone calls. Uh, I think we're in the communication business, Laura, so I think we should be communicating, where a lot of times you send stuff to an editor or an agent and it just goes in a black hole, you hear nothing from them. And I something about that bothers me.
1: So if one of the listeners out there wants to send something to you, Terry, make sure if they send you an email, right, that they should say they heard it on Laura Stewart's show, it's all about the questions, so that they know it's sort of solicited. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: And And how do they get that to you?
0: Well, my work email is terry at morganjamespublishing.com. That's one way they could do it. Um, I have 146,000 followers on Twitter, and in my Twitter profile, it has my personal email, which is just terry at com. So I don't really care how people contact me. Um, I just want them to reach out and do something.
1: I, I love that. And hey, you're at 146,000 Twitter followers. That's awesome. You You I just <laughs> like got uh, another 50,000 in such a short period of time. How are you doing that? Because that's so critical for prospective authors and business people nowadays is understanding social media. How are you doing that?
0: Um, I work at it every day, <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> I, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but I, I tweet almost every hour, for one thing. That consistency pays off. I tweet about publishing and writing, and I have my target market firmly in mind when I do that. But I'm also following new people every day, and that's another thing that your listeners can do to uh, keep building, building their, their Twitter following out there.
1: So they want to follow at Terry Whalen, and they also want to follow at the Laura Stewart. Absolutely. So that we can both get more followers and tweet them out and follow them back. That's right. When you started doing Twitter, I know it wasn't something that was totally natural for you. What was the hardest part about it for you? I mean, you're you're a writer. You've written so much. And to go down to 140 characters, but your tweets are so good. How did How did you get there?
0: Well, it's a process, you know, for all of us to learn learn how to do this, but I do not spend a lot of time on Twitter, to be honest. I have a full-time job acquiring books for Morgan James, so I limit the amount of time that I spend on social media, but I'm very focused on the different tasks that I do to to set up my tweets for the day through Hootsuite which is free, com so that people can set up their their work and get it out there and be, be tweeting on a regular basis because people like to follow people that tweet on a regular basis. And so if you do that consistency, that'll really pay off for you, too.
1: Like everything in life, consistency and taking action. Sounds like the common themes of today's show.
0: <laughs> yes, to me too.
1: <laughs> All right, so... Over the course of your life, has there been one question that either you've asked or that you were asked that you feel changed your life or brought you to where you are today
0: you know i don't, I don't know that I could pinpoint it down to uh, the one question that has done i guess the the area that i I guess i would I would focus on is to be a uh, To be a lifelong learner, to always be trying new things and keep growing in your life, whether you're in your 90s or whether you're in your 20s, you want to keep growing and keep learning new things. There's always new things to try out there. So try those things. See if they work for you. If they do, keep doing them. If they're not working, try something else new.
1: You know, that's that's a big one, too. If they're not working, <laughs> try something else new. Um, Arianna Huffington said something in her book, Thrive. She said sometimes the best way to finish something is to just stop doing it. It doesn't necessarily have to come to a completion, but finishing it just may mean I don't need to do this anymore. Whether it's um, a project at home or uh, something, some job that you're doing that doesn't feel like right, but you've got 10 or 15 projects half finished, maybe the way to finish them and just go, they don't need to be finished.
0: I think that's good advice. Uh, We need to focus on the things that are really primary in our own life and get those things done and then go on to the next thing.
1: Now, what about if we take it to the publishing world and think about a book? that then let's talk about that book in the drawer. Is every book that's in a drawer meant to be finished?
0: Oh, no. There's a lot of books that are still remain in the drawer, uh, particularly my novelist friends. They tell me that they have to write probably two or three, at least, novels, complete those novels before they actually get one published. And many of my best-selling novelist friends still have that first, second, third novel in their drawer. It's Probably never going to get published.
1: Just because it's not that good, or it's not
0: that good. Okay. They had to learn something about the whole storytelling, fiction writing process, writing those first couple of novels, and yet it's not that good. It's going to take a lot of work <laughs> to get that, <laughs> get that old novel in into into print.
1: I was recently coaching a, an author that I had met in an event, and they sent my me their manuscript, and it was. Um, like a 600-page novel. And it felt like there were three novels in one novel, but they didn't want to break it up or anything. And the book was really good, but they'd gotten all this feedback from different people, so they kept adding and adding and adding. And I'm like, take out, take out, take out. <laughs> you know, split it here, or put that into another book. It would be perfect. And and finally they decided to self-publish, which is actually great. Um, I think the book is good. But it's, it's fascinating how you feel that sometimes fixing is adding when maybe sometimes fixing is stopping or going in a different direction?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And at Morgan James, one of the things that we figured out is that, particularly for nonfiction, people's attention span is less and less. So shorter books are good. So the sweet spot that we tell authors, I tell authors all the time about, is about a 200-page book. Now, that translates into words and to being about 50,000 words. So it doesn't have to be a huge kind of book to really get out there and have an impact. The other day I was asking David Hancock where we came up with that sweet spot and, of 200 pages. And he said, well, I got that from the lead buyer of nonfiction books at Barnes & Noble.
1: Perfect. So we're going to have to end. The show is over. Terry, I want to thank you so much in that last note. 50,000 words. Terry, thank you so much for being with me today. And remember, the right questions can change your life, everyone. We'll be back next week.
0: Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at it'sallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.